Any simpleton can list every single person's name in a genealogy. It takes an artist to tell a story by including or leaving out just the right names. After all, every first century Jew knew the genealogies, backwards and forwards. So listing all the names would be silly, as well as pointless. So when you read the genealogies of Matthew and Luke's histories of Jesus, understand that they are telling a story that we, well, here in America, (laughs) we have to study it to understand it. (laughs) In the same way, there's a fascinating difference in answering a charge between Eastern and Western cultures. In fact, this difference extends to any discussion about pretty much anything. But you take a Western person to court and they'll call for the evidence, for witnesses. We want to clearly establish the facts. Eastern cultures, particularly in the first century, were more interested in the concepts. What's going on here? What's the idea? The point was not so much to give facts as to bring ideas forward so that the facts kind of have a place in which they can fit. In reading Stephen's speech, and it's in Acts chapter 7, you might want to open your Bible to that, I was always amazed when he got to the great conclusion, you stiff-necked people! It always felt to me like he suddenly blasted away at them. Get him real comfortable with a nice little recap of Jewish history, then blam! You know, knock him dead with this accusation. But that's not how it was. <laughs> I didn't understand what was going on. The truth is that when he makes that direct accusation, they already knew that he was going to do it. Stephen was a master storyteller and aided by the Holy Spirit, he laid out the concepts that supported his charges against them perfectly before he ever got to them. And everybody knew it. By the way, it it is funny that they put him on trial and he flips the tables on him. It's really great. Anyway, but if they, those people work like that, how do we get it from our Western point of view? So we're going to read this amazing speech, but not till we've had a chance to tune our ears so we know for what we need to listen. Until we're ready to discover what the points are Stephen is making as he goes through his little sermon. Um, what, kind of to move back to the way we like, what are the facts and the reasons that he brings out? But to do that, we first need to look at the accusations and what they are implying by them. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Blasphemy to vilify or speak false words against. In this case, against Moses and God. Am I the only one who finds it fascinating that Moses is even in there? (laughs) Let alone that he's mentioned first. Uh, Anyway. Stephen will show that he is not the one speaking blasphemously. They are. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This holy place. 
Don't forget that. We'll come right back to it. But it is not the obvious truth that he was not guilty with which Stephanie is most concerned. He'll instead focus on their misunderstandings like holy place. You ever been to the promised land? Anybody? No? Yes, you have. In fact, you're there right now. Okay? The land known as Israel is the promised land. That's what the Bible calls it, the promised land. The holy land is wherever God is, which is everywhere. (laughs) They thought Israel was the holy land. Like tourism marketers like to say even now. Stephen will correct their misunderstanding concerning location. They're not going to like it, (laughs) in case you weren't sure. And the customs, that which Moses gave them. There's an interesting story of a Protestant missionary who went to South America. It's a true story. He had great success in showing people Christ and many became vibrant believers. Soon they began to evangelize in all the villages all around there. Now, unbeknownst to our missionary friend, many who had been nominal, in name only, non-believing Roman Catholics, quit attending Mass and going to confession when they became true believers. They also quit carrying around the symbology of Roman Catholicism. In particular, they left their crucifixes behind. Now, many of the indigenous, the local Roman Catholic lay people, became very angry that these talismans were being discarded. One came up to the missionary, this is actually a true story, shoved a crucifix in his face and said, For this cross you will die! What? (laughs) The man had confused the customs with the reality. The custom of carrying a crucifix was more important to him than the truth of the one who died on a cross. He was not a believer in Jesus. He was a believer in the customs. Stephen will show these Jews that they were not true believers in God. In fact, they had made the customs their God. Note particularly how he uses the word circumcision. But he'll go far beyond this. We will look at many details as we go, but mostly remember that he is interested in proclaiming Jesus. The prophet like Moses, but much more than Moses. It is important to remember as we look through this text that everyone knows Stephen's accusers have broken the very law they say he is trying to undermine. Then they secretly instigated men and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribe and they set up false witnesses. All three of these secretly planning accusations, stirring up crowds, we would say instigating a riot, setting up and giving false testimony. Each are specifically proscribed against in the law that Moses received from God for them. The very law they say they are defending. When people say the end justifies the mean, they're denying the validity of the end for which they claim to be aiming. When you break the law to support the law, you're cutting off the very branch on which you're sitting. I mean, it is that simple. It really is. So the point is, we must remember all through this speech that Stephen, his accusers, and the council all know that the law has been broken in bringing him here and charging him as they have. Everyone knows they are guilty, even though they've put Stephen on trial. When Stephen calls them (laughs) stiff-necked, 
and says they always resist the Holy Spirit, they knew he was going to say it. Partly because they know they're guilty. And no one hates to be labeled as guilty more than a guilty person. (laughs) They feel the sting of Stephen's accusation all the more acutely because they know he is right. But that's not Stephen's primary interest. (laughs) In fact, he seems to ignore his own danger and directly attacks their misapplications of the teachings of Scripture. Remember, Stephen's main goal is to preach Jesus. Everyone also, everyone knows it's really all about Jesus. The council knows it's about Jesus. Stephen's accusers know it's really that they're accusing Jesus. Stephen knows he's on trial because he claims Jesus as Lord. So, Stephen has a goal. To achieve it, he must deal with their misconceptions. Let's go back to that idea of a holy place. Remember, Stephen had all the history of the Hebrew people to draw on. So he carefully pulls out just what he wants. The text that he does use tells them everything they need to know. And he uses people to illustrate his points. Look at verses 2 to 4. Where was Abraham when God first appeared to him? In Israel, this holy place? No, in Mesopotamia with the Chaldeans. Then in Haran, not in Israel. What about Joseph? Look at verses 9 to 10. God was with Joseph in Egypt. Well, of course, he was also with him in the promised land before that, but Stephen purposefully doesn't mention that. And they would notice his careful choice. Besides, all the great things that Joseph did were done in Egypt. And there's a curiosity in verses 15 and 16. The patriarchs were buried in Shechem, which he mentions twice. Why? Because Shechem is in Samaria, not in Israel, this holy place, at all. And Moses, with whom he deals from verses 20 to 44, never once set foot in the promised land, ever. In his whole 120 years of life, he never set foot in the promised land. All the signs and wonders that he sees and does are done in the wilderness or Egypt. Even his sons are born in Midian, not in Israel, which Stephen pointedly mentions. When God tells him he is standing on holy ground, he's in the wilderness, not in Israel. Of particular interest is that he receives the law where? Not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Sinai in the wilderness, which is so holy, God warned Moses that they should keep their animals from wandering under the mountain because any animals that would walk on it when God was there would die. In the wilderness, nowhere near Jerusalem, this holy place. Stephen clearly shows in the recitation of these stories that they knew so well that the idea that Jerusalem is the only holy place is simply not true. It wasn't in the past, and by implication, it's not now. Even their much-hallowed temple, look at verse 44, had its origins in a tent that was made in and carried around in the, for 40 years in the wilderness. <laughs> not the promised land. And even when Solomon, not David, was allowed to build a temple, God made it very clear that it was a house in which to worship him. But, verses 49 and 50, nothing made by man can contain him. There's no specific place one must worship God. Because he made everything. 
including the promised land. Abraham was promised the land for his seed, his offspring, but there was a greater promise that through his seed all the people of the earth would be blessed. Most Jews of the first century recognized that this was somehow tied up with the coming of the Messiah. Everyone was expecting the Messiah. Even the Romans, even everybody. And they all knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Everybody knows all this. (laughs) And they were well aware that Moses said this prophet, this Messiah, would be like him somehow. So everything Stephen says about Moses is pregnant with meaning. Here are a few examples. In verse 20, we see that Moses was beautiful in God's sight when he was born. Certainly, Stephen wants them to know he believes Jesus to be beautiful in God's eyes. In verse 22, Moses was not educated in Hebrew schools. These very priests complained that Jesus and his disciples were uneducated men. They all thought the Messiah should be obvious from the moment of birth, like like he would glow or something. But Jesus didn't. And neither did Moses, in verse 23, who was 40 when he made himself known to his people, a full-grown adult. Jesus was well along in his adult life, next to his 40s, when he started his ministry. Moses defended the Israelites against those oppressing them. Jesus defended the common people against the oppressive religious hierarchy. Stephen mentions, verse 34, that Moses was sent to deliver the people. Jesus came to set us free. Trust me, they remembered this. Moses performed signs and wonders, verse 36. They all knew Jesus did the same. Moses, verse 38, received living oracles. Oracles. Jesus claimed to be the living word. You hear what he's doing? How he's making his case? And you may have noticed that I skipped a very important comparison between Moses and Jesus. They were both rejected. Let's read verse 25. It's so important. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Interesting choice of words. Ruler and judge, ruler and redeemer. Does this remind you of anything? Oh yeah, Peter's first speech on Pentecost. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord, ruler, Christ, the one who will redeem his people. And then there's the first time Peter and John stand before the council after healing the lame man. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They rejected the cornerstone, the one on whom everything is built, their Lord, the one who would save, redeem, all who would be saved. And last, remember what the apostles said when the priests were so jealous they arrested them again? The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They rejected, in fact, killed him, the leader and savior, the Lord and redeemer. They, the people standing right in front of Stephen, did this. Trust me, they remembered 
three very public declarations, twice in front of this very council before which Stephen stands. Jesus is the ruler and redeemer. Do you think there's any chance the priests missed Stephen's point? <laughs> no, he's very clear. Especially when you consider how he leads up to it. Abraham and with him Isaac and Jacob and his children, the patriarchs, did not get to stay in the promised land. Their claim was first rejected. It wasn't until 400 years later that the children of Israel entered in. Joseph was rejected by his jealous brothers, but later they were forced to serve him. And then Moses. Do you think they might be getting the idea that Stephen is trying to say they're rejecting Jesus, their Lord and Savior now, but that he will come again and then all true believers will follow him? But they aren't true believers. In verse 39, the ancient Israelis refused to obey him. In verse 40, they asked to make their own gods. In 41, they offer sacrifices, the calf they made. And then, uh, verses 42 and 43. Remember, these people know the scriptures, the Old Testament, very well. Verses 42 and 43 conflate centuries of sin by the people of Israel. Stephen takes words from times all throughout the life of Israel. They go all the way back until they're finally torn out of the land and then taken captive in Babylon. And he weaves them together. And he's clearly saying most Israelites have always rejected the true teaching of God. And, by implication, so are his accusers in this council. And then he says, and I believe with great sadness, that all this time that they were sinning, verses 44 to 47, they had the temple. The very thing Stephen's accusers are lying and cheating to preserve temple worship their ancestors had while they sinned terribly. Temple worship didn't keep our ancestors from sinning and clearly it isn't keeping you from sinning. No wonder they got so mad. Not only that, but God, verses 48-50, is independent of this temple that they worship. The temple is not really necessary. Temple worship was a means to worship God but clearly most of them didn't really worship God in it. So now, it's Jesus. Remember, everybody knows the real focus of this trial. Everybody knows who the real focus of this trial is. It's not Stephen. He's just the representative. There's a better way to worship God than temple customs. So you can see when Stephen accosts them with the blackness of their hearts, that they already knew where he was going. They should have been ready to repent, but instead were seething with anger and needed only the formal accusation to blow up. And so Stefan makes just that accusation. It's sink or swim time. Unfortunately, most of them sink. All right. Let's take a few breaths. A little stretching. Are you ready? All right, here's Stefan's final defense. And Stefan said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. 
They went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, says God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise grew near which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men and brothers, or you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods that who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. The God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. That the Most High does not dwell in houses made of hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow, <laughs> it is breathtaking. It's a tremendous witness. Wouldn't you have loved to be the one to say those things to those men? They would not. You Jews are in the promised land, but you are not going to inherit anything. They didn't really care about the law or Moses. They were not interested in learning the truth or in true worship of God. It's the place and the form of worship they wanted to keep, not true godliness. The place of God is not Israel, but wherever his people are. The temple of God is not a building with the hearts of believers. The ultimate law of God is not that written by Moses, but the law he writes on the hearts of his people. Stephen was, for all the believers... Summoning all the remaining Jews, pleading with them to join him in this new dispensation. He wants to show them that worship of God is now centered in the church, the heart of believers, and not in the temple. In fact, as Paul would later show, the church is the temple of God. But we now know that Stephen was signing his death certificate by giving this speech. They, they were not going to believe. But then, Stephen knew it too. How could he do it? And was it really worth it? Well, yes. Remember that Abraham had to leave where he was going to get to the place where God wanted him? 
Stephen knew it was time for the believing Jews and the faith to leave where they are and go out into the world. That is what Jesus said. But he's going to die. That didn't matter. He knows the living word. His Lord will redeem him. Have you in this story been reminded of what the priest did to Jesus? Luke saw the similarity and he wanted you to notice it. You see, it's because Stephen was filled with the words and the truth of Jesus that he was able to confront them. He had learned who God is, so he had wisdom. Stephen showed that the people of God are those who believe. It never was those who were racially Jews, but those who trusted God. And now it's Christian believers. He showed that God's place isn't in the temple or the Holy Land, and it never was. And now God's place, this holy place, must be extended out to the whole world, just as Jesus commanded. Still, interesting, he showed that they were right about a few things. That place would be destroyed. The way of worshiping God, their customs, has been changed. It's all about Jesus. If we make our lives about Jesus, we will be able to speak like Stephen spoke even if it were to cost us our lives. Stephen wove a story to give one more chance to unrepentant Jews. I don't know. Can we give someone a chance with a story? Maybe just facts. (laughs) Maybe as a witness. Can we, no matter what it costs us, Give another living, breathing human being a chance, just one chance at a new life with Jesus.